we are beginning not just what we're calling One Worship Together this summer, but also a nine-week series that we're calling Summer of the Spirit. The reason we're calling it Summer of the Spirit is because we're going through the book of Acts throughout this summer series, and throughout the book of Acts, we will experience together this outbreaking of the power of God's presence in the Spirit with this early church, a group of people who looked and sounded and acted an awful lot like you and me, trying to figure out how to be followers of Jesus in an increasingly complicated world. As we've said before, a a global economy then in those days in the Roman Mediterranean world of trying to figure out how do you conduct business, treat people with dignity, learn to be more compassionate and understanding in spite of the many differences attempting to pull people apart. So as we move through these series and hear these stories out of the book of Acts in our New Testament, I hope that you will begin to see the trajectory of of God's movement through this group of people then and see the powerful echo in this group of people now. Our passage today comes within a broader context. The book of Acts, this sixth chapter, comes after several very important things. One is the very beginning of the first chapter in the book of Acts. Luke, the traditional author of Luke, the gospel, and Acts, what we're studying now, gives a very subtle outline of where he's headed. He, as a brilliant person who can offer a literary artistry like no other in the Gospels, gives us an overview of where we're headed. In this first chapter of Acts, Luke allows Jesus to speak to the disciples, and he says to them these words, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Judea and Samaria, and unto the ends of the earth. And this, in Luke's subtle literary artistry, becomes his outline for where we are headed as hearers of this little slice of church history. The story begins in Jerusalem, where we are today in the sixth chapter of Acts, By the fifth and sixth chapter, the story begins to broaden into Samaria and Judea. And by the 10th, 11th, and 12th chapters of Acts, the story expands unto the ends of the earth. So in this first chapter, Luke kind of tells us where we're headed and where the gospel is going. And we are glad participants now in how this story Unfolds both listening to what happened then and being expectant for what still is happening now. Two weeks ago on Pentecost Sunday, we allowed the second chapter of Acts to be our guide that sort of begins this story. If you'll remember on Pentecost Sunday in the second chapter of Acts, Luke offers us a description of that early gathering of believers, folks struggling to figure out who they were, whose they were, and where they were supposed to be going. 
And in that second chapter of Acts, there is this fascinating use, again, Luke's literary artistry, where in that gathering, there were people, as Luke says, Jewish folks from all over the world, the earth. And he lists from east to west all these geographical areas, incorporating and sort of revisiting Genesis chapter 11 in the Tower of Babel, the confusion that erupted then and the order that is brought back into the fellowship of all these people from all over the world. That second chapter is a very important beginning for us today because it talks about a multicultural context. It talks about people struggling to understand other people. It's not just different languages, but it's the cultures those languages represent. It's the backgrounds, perspectives that all these different people bring to that early fellowship. So what we have today is a fascinating window in the sixth chapter into this fellowship that has expanded, has, has been nurtured, people are excited, the spirit is working, and everything is just going great, except it's not. Now I know you're gonna find this surprising that people in a church didn't get along. I mean, I have people coming to me all the time saying, you know, my work is stressful, my home life right now is stressful, but I've got a lot of tension in my life. The last thing I need is to come to church and feel stress. So thankfully, churches don't have any stress. What happens, sadly, in a lot of churches is they're filled with people that are very much entrenched in what we call the human condition. And this is a troubling condition that many of us suffer from, and we are not alone because we find out in the sixth chapter of Acts, this troubling human condition shows its ugly face. And what occurs in this fellowship is fascinating. Now, we need to talk about a couple of words that are given to us that, that need some explanation. The first is, uh, as, as we heard just a moment ago, read the Hellenists were complaining to the Hebrews about something that was happening in the fellowship. So first of all, the word Hellenist. Theron read this a moment ago in, a, in an excellent way. Everything was pronounced exactly right. The word Hellenist simply is a word describing a Greek word that talks about the country Greece. Hellas is the Greek word for Greece. Let's all say that together, Hellas. Now let's say Greece. Okay, Hellas is simply the Greek word, you've now spoken Greek. Greek uh, is the, the language of the New Testament. It was the language that the Bible in the New Testament was originally written in. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. The reason the New Testament was written in Greek was because in the Roman Empire, the Roman world that Jesus and the disciples were very much a part of, the language of commerce, the language that people used to conduct business, was a language called Koine Greek or Common Greek. And so people learn this language if they're going to have any kind of interaction in this expanding global economy, if they want to have their business. Believe it or not, competition didn't just start with the American experiment. 
Competition was going on in the Roman world, and if people wanted to stay in business, guess what they had to do? Somebody on their staff, someone in their business had to speak Greek in order to be able to to trade and, and participate in this larger economy. So it's very interesting now, in this fellowship that's going on in this early church and the excitement of what's happening, the, the, the Spirit of God is among these folks and good things are going on, except there's tension in the fellowship between two cultural divisions. The Hellenists, that is people, they're Jewish people now, the whole congregation is made up of Jewish folks, but some of them were Hellenists, that is, they spoke Greek as their primary language. And then the Hebrew people, other Jewish people, who spoke Aramaic as their primary language. Jesus spoke Aramaic. As far as we know, 10 of the 12 disciples spoke Aramaic. Two may have spoken Greek. But the majority of them spoke Aramaic as their native language. Now, ordinarily, this wouldn't be that big a deal, except we all know that language often stands for cultural background, broader perspectives, how we view the world. Some of us who speak different languages see the world exactly the same. Some of us who speak other languages see the world in different ways. We have different ideas about what's right and what's wrong. In this particular fellowship, apparently there was some concern between these two cultural groups. The Greek-speaking folks, traditionally in that day, were people who had the perspective of the broader world. They had learned Greek as their primary language because they were probably business people who had the experience of the broader world. They were comfortable with sort of a fluid cultural context where they could go in and out of different cultures in their business practices. They were comfortable with people that were different. Apparently, the Aramaic speakers, we would call them more traditional folks. The the Greek speakers, we could say they're a little more progressive. The Aramaic speakers maybe are a little more traditional. They have less interaction with the broader world. They may be a little suspicious about what's going on out there. The world might be a, a little scarier than they're comfortable with. They're a little more comfortable with just the folks that are like they are. So in the fellowship, you've got these two generalized cultural expressions of people attempting to worship together and live together in community. And here's what happens. As Theron read a moment ago, we we hear just this kind of overview of, well, the Hellenist were complaining against the Hebrews. That is, the Greek-speaking Jewish people were complaining to the Hebrew, Aramaic-speaking Jewish people that people in their cultural group were being overlooked. Listen to this. In the food distribution. In other words, listen carefully. There was discrimination in this early church fellowship. Apparently some of the Aramaic speaker folks were maybe, we don't know, there are not a lot of details. Luke and his his artistry is very general in the way he describes this, leaving it up to our imagination, but he expects us to use imagination. 
in focusing in on what would this have felt like? How would you have felt if you were a Greek-speaking Jew, you were in the fellowship, you were excited about the movement of God's Spirit among you, except when you stood in line to be fed with everybody else, nobody gave you anything. How would you feel? Some of us call this second-class citizenship, and it's no fun. If you've ever been discriminated against, you know not only does it feel bad, but it colors your whole perspective on the fellowship you're trying to be a part of. You want to be a part of this family, but you're being told they don't want you. How does that feel? In this moment, listen carefully, the history of the early church is hanging by a thread. If I were a Greek-speaking Jewish person and I were being told, you're not like us, guess where I would go? Somewhere else. The days in that fellowship for me would be extraordinarily limited. But something interesting happens. This is where throughout the book of Acts we see God's spirit at work in powerful ways because ordinary human interaction, ordinary human responses in Acts seem somehow to be softened and transformed. Where people ordinarily would hold at arm's length people that were different from them or respond as in this case with anger and frustration because of the bigotry that was being displayed. Instead, something amazing happens. These Greek-speaking Jewish people who had been sort of shunned come to the Aramaic-speaking Jews and the apostles and they're honest about how this has made them feel. They are able to say to them, listen, our folks, people in our fellowship are being overlooked and we feel like it's intentional. Honesty is a beautiful quality in a fellowship, especially when there is this kind of dynamic at work when people are being made to feel uncomfortable. Sometimes the people doing the discomforting don't know that they're doing it. This may have been just innocent stuff. It may have been the Aramaic-speaking folks just were more comfortable with their people who spoke their language, and they were uncomfortable trying to communicate with people that they couldn't really understand very well. That may have been just the innocent issue at work. It may not have been blatant bigotry or discrimination. It may have just been innocent. And it's to the credit for the Greek-speaking Jews that they gave the benefit of the doubt to the folks that were hurting their feelings. And so they're honest about what they have experienced. They probably, in good pastoral care language, used I statements. I, I feel like, I feel like I'm being left out here. Maybe it's just me. But it feels like when the bread was passed around and then the, 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 the wine after and, and, and they, they just went around, it felt like somebody just didn't like me very much. They were honest. And here's the beautiful thing. Other evidences that the Spirit is at work. 
in the honesty, when the people who've been hurt express their feelings, sometimes if, if we're on the other end, if we're the ones that have done the deed, intentionally or unintentionally, if it's unintentional, our immediate response, at least using I statements in good pastoral care language, my immediate response is, well, I'm sorry you misinterpreted that. Uh, it's, it's your fault. I mean, this is not, it's not about me. Uh, it couldn't be about me. God loves me, and, and my wife loves me. It can't be my fault. But that's not what the Aramaic speakers, at least the apostles, it's not what they do. They're open to the critique. This is a powerful moment, a window into how to do creative conflict management. When one group who's been hurt is honest about their pain, those who've caused the pain are open to the critique and they say, this is not right. And we gotta do something about this. So there's honesty in the fellowship, there's openness in the fellowship and there's responsiveness in the fellowship. So the Aramaic speakers led by the apostles, they, they gather together and they say, this, this needs to change. We have made a mistake here. We've got to do this better. So the fellowship is brought together and they're instructed, call out. Seven members of this fellowship. We're gonna call them diakonos, servant leaders. We're going to ask them to be the eyes, the ears, and the heart of this fellowship to make sure that no one gets left out ever again. And this is where the story becomes even more beautiful. So there's honesty in the fellowship, there's openness in the critique, there is response, and now there is creative trust. Because listen carefully to what happens. In the choosing seven out of this broad fellowship of Greek-speaking Jewish people and Aramaic-speaking Jewish people, the folks that are chosen to be the servant leaders, did you hear the names? There are seven people that are called out. And let me read them for you again and tell me if it strikes you as interesting. Stephanos, Nicanor, Timon, Philip, Procurus, Parmenius, Nicholas. They're all Greek-speaking Jews. Now this is, to use a colloquial term, so cool. That's in the Bible also somewhere, I'm sure. Creative conflict management, this is an amazing moment. Now think about this. Just a little while ago, the history of our church, the people that came before us, was hanging by a thread. The fellowship was about to be torn apart. And through creative conflict management, or perhaps the movement of the spirit, mending and making creative, this fellowship not only is healed, 
but prospers. It's an amazing moment in our church history. It's one we need to take very seriously because at times like this, sometimes our response, we hear this often, well, you can't change history. Not long ago with the Civil War monument discussion and debate and angst and the emotions that were, that were dredged up because of that, people, you can't change history. No, you can't. But you can repair history especially from the Christian perspective when we know that Jesus has redeemed history, you can repair what has been done wrong. And that's what happened in this fellowship. They said, this is not right. We've got to make it right. How do we do that? Well, as a congregation, they decided the very ones who've been discriminated against, we're going to put them in charge of caring for us. Yes. And we're going to say to them, you have felt discriminated against. You have felt the pangs of bigotry. We are going to trust you to help us be better. We're going to trust you to allow the Spirit with eyes and ears and heart to help us keep everyone equally involved and equally loved and equally cared for so that no one falls through the cracks and feels left out, overlooked, or uncared for. This is a powerful moment that for me is the perfect example of the movement of the Spirit and a fellowship of people filled and steeped in the human condition. And yet somehow they rise above the tendency to blame and point and make fun of and tell jokes about and instead create a fellowship that is beautiful and vibrant and life-giving. And this is not only a lesson for them, it is a lesson for us. For the same kinds of issues at work in our fellowship and in our broader world and the struggle of coming to grips with multicultural issues and concerns that face us all, may we be open and ready for the Spirit's movement in our lives. May li we listen carefully to God's still small voice in our hearts and spirit so that we too might make good, wise, just, peaceful decisions. May we, like the psalmist in Psalm 34, 14, not only seek peace, but pursue it. And pursue it with the vision and the hope of our spiritual ancestors, with honesty, openness, responsiveness, and creative trust that God's Spirit is at work now and forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen.